and welcome to JobsCast. I want to begin this week's episode with a clarification. You know that's not me, right? That guy saying, hello, and welcome to JobsCast. That's me emulating the professional friendliness one might expect from a high-quality informational product, but it's not really me, and although I think it's perfectly fine and often useful and interesting and fun to perform, to be performative, I feel that in this setting of bi-weekly dialogue related to the world of work, sometimes rather loosely, uh, I'm not donning any special caps or enrobing myself in any sort of persona. I'm just trying to be more myself by doing what I greatly enjoy and find meaning in, and that is diving into the deep end of conversation. Now, I will say I can't totally escape some amount of discomfort and unnaturalness in this role of presenter, host, interviewer. Even now, I'm, I'm reading to you. I wrote what you're hearing a little while ago, and now I'm reading it, and thereby, in a way, performing it. I'm not going off the cuff here. Maybe you already inferred this from my pseudo-professional tone and past opening monologues, or maybe you don't care, but I'm bringing my attention to the issues of authenticity and honesty and performance because it is high time that we, the capital W we, all of us, start loving ourselves for who we are and not what we're trying to do or become. And that begins with an acknowledgement that to be human is to be mired in flaws and imperfections, And we don't have to live perpetually walking uphill, trying to love ourselves in spite of our inadequacies. We can just love ourselves wholly right now. We don't have to earn it. The question of deserving love is an oxymoron. I'm, of course, talking to myself here as much as to you. I would say I'm a rookie at loving myself, and I love that rookie. But that rookie exists in the same world you do where, no matter how many times we remind ourselves that the manicured social media beauty inches in front of our eyes is just a bland impersonation of a sort of perfection that doesn't even exist, the eye sees what the eye sees, and in metabolizing that content, the mind releases toxic messages. I'm not productive enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not traveling enough, I'm not funny enough, I'm not wealthy enough, I'm not talented enough, and on and on and on and on and on. I know I sound like an old person picking on social media. It is low-hanging fruit, and if you derive a true sense of something other than an ego spritz from posting, then follow your bliss, baby. But if any of what I'm saying is registering, what I'm trying to do right now is model what it looks like to do the thing I'm really trying to do while exposing the learning curves and not pretending that I know what the fuck I'm doing. No one ever does. Imagine if instead of seeing food porn and vacation porn and property porn and familial bliss porn and social media, we more often saw each other just being human, whatever that may mean in a given moment. These are the things I stand for and want to do a better job standing for and hopefully embodying in this podcast. I want to stand for less hiding, less bullshit, more honesty, more love. So it is now my genuine pleasure to introduce today's guest, Jerry Colonna. Jerry is the co-founder and CEO of Reboot.io, a coaching company for entrepreneurs. He was formerly a partner at JP Morgan and co-founder at the venture capital firm Flatiron Partners. Last summer, Jerry released his book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. And more important than all of that, in my opinion, is that Jerry's got soul. Let me read what Jerry and his co-founders wrote on the About Us section of the Reboot.io website, because it dovetails so nicely with what I'm trying to get at with JobsCast. They write, quote, We wanted to foster a revolution around work because better humans make better leaders. We also wanted to prove that love and business work well together, and that work can be a safe place to bring your whole human self. And we wanted to prove that we could build the kind of company that we coach our clients to build because, as Jerry says, Half-assing it is boring. 
In my conversation with Jerry today, we discuss the what do you do question and why it tends to be so unhelpful, how Jerry thinks about the privilege that comes with being a white cisgendered male. We talk about revealed wisdom versus discovered wisdom, the value of stillness, the art of growing up, what it means to be both readers and writers of our lives. We talk about how white America seems to be addressing the endemic racism of this country in a new way these days. We get into the true definition of masculinity, how to work hard in a healthy way, and so much more. I'm now very excited to present to you my conversation with Jerry Colonna. Jerry, thanks so much for being a part of JobsCast. Thanks, Pat. It's good to see you. So, Jerry, when you encounter people and they give you the what do you do question, how do you go about answering that these days? What do you do? <laughs> uh, what do I, how do I respond to that question? You know, I might get creative and say something like I listen to people or I might, uh, more likely than not, I ask them to tell me why that's important to them. What I don't do is give in to the impulse to use the job definition as some sort of character-defining, personhood-defining statement. My feeling is that happens so automatically and so readily in so many circumstances. And I think, as I mentioned to you in our preliminary call, I, I sometimes feel that I disappoint people if I don't give them <laughs> that answer. I run a small English tutoring business or, you know, whatever uh, quick, comprehensible, career-oriented answer there is to that question. Isn't that an interesting response on your part? Uh, I'll note two observations about it. One... Please do. Yeah, one is um, obviously your fear of disappointing them. And the second, the weight in which you place their opinion upon you. Mm. See, I, I always found that question really, really uh, interesting. You know, coming of age in New York, as I did, <clears throat> I used to think about the fact that, you know, when I became... I don't know if you know, you know Yiddish, but a good good Yiddish word is a mocker. A big guy. Okay. Okay. When I was a mocker back in New York, and people would sort of come and go in those salon-like conversations, and they would say, well, what do you do? Implicit in all of it was whether they should bow lower to me or I should bow lower to them. <laughs> Like, whose status was greater? And uh, after a certain time, I just got so weary of that because it was such nonsense. And, of course, it's a thing that people still do. So, anyway, I was taken aback by your question. <laughs> I, no, I, I appreciate that reflection, and it immediately calls to mind for me how other cultures do that dance. Um I've worked with a lot of students from South Korea over the years, and I know that when two people meet each other who are both South Korean for the first time, if there aren't, uh, if age difference isn't reflected in obvious physical differences, 
then there are certain indirect questions that are politely posed, such as, uh, what year did you graduate from college? They don't, they don't come right out and say, uh, are you older or younger than me? But, but the age hierarchy seems akin to what, uh, sort of what we're doing in a veiled way with our power hierarchy, as you allude to in that setting. I think we're always in some sort of hierarchical dynamic, uh, one way or the other, but I think I guess puncturing what's bullshit about it is uh, is useful and can get us into more meaningful territory. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's exhausting. Yeah, when I hatched this podcast idea, Jobscast, to take a very close look about how people think and feel about the working uh, world that we find ourselves spending so much time in, it was in uh, January, and I was fortunate to be on a lovely vacation with my partner, Rosanna, and we were in Puerto Rico and we were talking about creative plans. And then we started bandying ideas back and forth. I, I was really you know, interested in, in doing this. Then COVID-19 uh, happened and changed the world. And then here in the US, George Floyd was, was the latest um, innocent black person to be, to be murdered. And that ushered in this period of of reckoning uh, in America. I think we're having this conversation around race in a way that's never been had before. I mean, even certain aspects of the optics. I don't know if you're an NBA fan, but I was watching some playoff games last night and seeing how the players could choose a word on their back of their jersey of what they stand for. It's deeply double-edged. It's it's heartbreaking that we're still having these conversations, but also I think that there's there's some hope to be derived from the moment. So, so the confession here, Jerry, is that when I came up with this idea, I was thinking, well, I'm enough white guy here. I think I think maybe I don't need to find other white men to share this this space with me. I want to be a platform for other voices, but I will say your book so moved me. Reboot brought me into so many different modes of feeling and thinking and challenged me um, that I had to email you to get you to come on the show. Uh, and I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you're here. So d- to bring this this little meditation to a landing in the form of a question, I'm wondering, Jerry, how do you think these days about your your privilege as a white man in America? Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for the context of that and also for bringing your attention to this question. And uh, thank you, too, for the compliment about the book. I continue to be uh, moved deeply by the number of people who have found comfort in the book, even in these days. And with regard to both your question, but really the context of your question. I appreciate your desire to amplify non-white voices. We've had the microphone far too long. And um, what I would say is that um, with that said, and as important as that work is, one of the things that heartens me right now is that white people are talking about racial injustice in a way that is different. And I don't know that we're going to address the original sin of this country, which is racism, specifically anti-black racism, but racism, anti-indigenous people, racism. I don't know that we're going to be able to address the original sin until those of us who have benefited from that experience, from that original sin, are willing to look 
at the situation, look at our privilege and ask ourselves, how have I benefited from this? Whether or not I chose that and what am I willing to change in order to see the world, the just world that I wish to birth into being. So again, while I think amplifying voices is incredibly important and using whatever platforms you and I have to do that is incredibly important work. It is equally important that white people talk to each other about race in a way that is not filled with bullshit and bypassing. Yes, yes. Thank you for that. I would also like to uh, refer listeners to the Reboot podcast. I listened just a few days ago to your conversation with uh, Leslie Feinzig. Am I getting the last name right? The Female Founders Alliance founder. Yep. It was a it's a wonderful talk. Listeners can Google Reboot podcast. They'll find it easily. And I was so oh, I was so moved, Jerry. When you I'm gonna start crying again thinking about it. But when when she talked about her grandfather fleeing pogroms in Poland and getting denied at Ellis Island and having to go to Costa Rica uh, and not getting that golden ticket as you likened it to and you getting the golden ticket, right? You, your family coming into Ellis Island and then you, you know, saying this boy from Brooklyn is, is with you uh, to contextualize it. Le- Leslie is Costa Rican Jewish woman. I, I do, th- I do want to name that. I think African-American dynamics within the race conversation in particular it's a it's a separate topic, but nevertheless, I think that anecdote to me really demonstrated a way in which a person can be an ally, a way in which a white man can can really be an ally. Uh, it was very special to me, so thank you for that. And and I hope listeners will go enjoy, will go enjoy it rather than me paraphrasing it here. Thank you for saying that. Leslie is a brave soul. And for those who don't have the time to listen to that, one of her core questions was, I wonder if I belong here anymore. Mm. And that broke my heart. And the reference you make to this boy from Brooklyn is what I said was, this boy from Brooklyn is willing to put his white body on the line to defend her right to belong. And that is my obligation and moral duty as a privileged, white, cisgendered male. I love it. It's very inspiring. Jerry, I want to ask you about a challenge you pose to the readers early on in Reboot. You alluded to two different kinds of wisdom, revealed wisdom and discovered wisdom. I really enjoyed this distinction. Uh, Immediately, the, the way that I sort of thought about that was that Discovered wisdom might be something you learn or you are taught. I'm an avid reader and an omnivorous consumer of all kinds of information, and I very much enjoy that educational process, but it, but it really struck me that all of that learning came via a process of, of discovery, and there's this, there's this discrete other kind of wisdom that is revealed that's not from the outside in. It's from the inside in, so to speak. So that's not really a question, but I, I guess I'd just like, if you can, to, to reflect more on, on how you came to that distinction and, and what it means to you at present. Well, I think you've described what I was reaching for uh, well, 
but if I can build upon it just slightly, revealed wisdom or, or learned wisdom also includes the wisdom that comes to us from experience. So all of the things that you're talking about, reading a profound book, going to a lecture, you know, sitting with an elder, although stick a pin in that one for a moment, are all expressions of learned wisdom. Revealed wisdom, the way I think about it, is the kind of wisdom that um, I, I think in the Zen tradition they would call it satori it's mm. the moment it's almost like a lightning bolt that comes out and and strikes you one of my favorite buddhist saints tibetan buddhist saints is manchuri and manchuri wields the sword of prajna and it's a flaming sword and uh the image is it's the wisdom that cuts like a sword it just boom cuts right through and that feels like revealed wisdom it's and and the point of that is that we can lean in and study and try to understand and go to the mountaintop and speak to the elder but if we are not in a place emotionally internally to hear the teachings then the sword is not going to cut. And what's important is to understand that there is this necessary process in the art of growing up, which is to sit your butt down and be patient and allow the revealing to occur. Another Buddhist tale comes to mind i forget which of the great teachers it was it was marpa perhaps or tilaropa or naropa anyway a student goes to the master and says master what is the path to enlightenment and the master lifts his robes and reveals his bear behind and points to the calluses and what he's saying is sit down <laughs> on the cushion do the work and that's what i meant by revealed wisdom mm. that's great i was going to i was going to ask you how does one you already answered the question how does one begin to address the sort of koan that is doing the not doing of being still uh mm. and <laughs> putting your butt down is one is one uh, explicit way to start uh, yeah, ima imagine <laughs> how long it takes to sit to get calluses on your butts. <laughs> right. right, right. We have the very bizarre predicament as human beings of being both the the writers and the readers of our life stories simultaneously. Mm. This is something that mm. I find fascinating and beguiling. To extend your thinking and your metaphor, I think that the writing part of our lives is very much the doing. Uh, it's the actions, it's the behavior, it's the busyness. And I think the reading part is the stillness. So I, I wonder when you help people find the, the ghosts in their, in their frames and connect them to the names of the people in their family that they came before and the actions of the people that they came before, 
you help people, I think, in a way, be better readers of their own stories. My question for you, if, if this is making any sense, is what are the ways in which you feel that there is that there is truth and that there is insight and that there is goodness in in the way that you're helping people be readers of their own lives? So it's actually a multi-part question. I'm going to take it in pieces and just say that I loved your description of what I was trying to share and the difference between writing one's life and reading one's life. I think it's an apt reflection on my own work and on thinking. Another image I would give you is part of the entire uh, exercise of what I refer to as radical self-inquiry is to cultivate the capacity to observe your life while your life is undergoing. Not in a way to create a paralyzing self-consciousness, right. but in those reflective moments where you're building calluses on your butt. Right. It's to ask oneself, huh, how was I kind today? How was I hurtful? What was I feeling in that moment? What was I feeling in the moment after that? How did that lead to another person's happiness or unhappiness? What is the relationship there? And to do so with the commitment to grow, not a commitment to create guilt and shame. Right. Right. So so and, and another image to think of is is as a moviegoer. Right. As with dreams. We are the directors, writers, actors, and audience of the movie of our life. All the roles. (laughs) All of the roles, right? And what I will tell a client often is pop some popcorn and watch it, (laughs) you know, just enjoy it Um, uh, because you can gain some insight, especially when the character on the screen, which is a form of you, does exactly what you know they were going to do. Don't go in the room. The bad guy's in there. Yeah, they go into the room, (laughs) right? And then you're like, ah. Or conversely, when they do something utterly surprising and reveal some aspect of their character to you, Yep. right? And so that quality of being able to sort of sit and be with our life is a powerful tool. So pause, second part of your question, which is about how I do this with people, what's happening for me. So in my book, I talk about, uh, if you remember, I talk about the encounter I had with Grandfather Boulder uh, on a a, uh, quest that I did. I had a four day water only fast in the desert of Utah. And before anybody asks, no, I did not take any ayahuasca (laughs) or anything like that. I'm too scared of such things. But I did receive a name from that experience. And that name is Holder of Stories of the Heart. Holder of Stories of the Heart. Now, to hold someone's story is to hold like a precious little bird their soul. Mm. And so if you're given the task of holding precious, a precious little bird, 
you have to be gentle. You have to be attentive. You have to be fully present. You can't be holding a bird in your left hand and whipping out your phone in the right hand and tweeting some <laughs> nonsense about the politics of the world. You have to be fully there. And to hold someone's story is uh, perhaps the most precious assignment for anyone. And it is an honor to listen closely to someone's heart. So how do I do it? I don't listen with my prefrontal cortex. I listen with my body. And then I listen to my body. And sometimes I will say things, I will ask a question that comes out of nowhere. Like I remember from our first conversation, I could be misremembering this, but I surprised you a couple of times, if I recall. You did. And one of the things I remember perhaps surprising you about was I asked you the name of your girlfriend. Because you were going on and on about her. And you had this incredible smile. <laughs> it was like I asked you to na the name of your precious little bird mm. that you love. Am I remembering that correctly? Absolutely. It's such a it's a simple gesture that I found uh, so lovely and grounding and opening. And I smiled because I feel like, again, it goes to to our sort of uh, doing versus being still binary where, you know, oh, my girlfriend and this, this, you know, and it, it's sort of couched in this right. this like doer terminology. And then when you said, what's her name? And I right. said, I don't remember if I said actually Rosanna or Rosie. I interchangeably use those names and and a bunch of other names. Uh, but but uh, I, I remember being able to just say her name to you. So you created stillness in that moment with the name. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it was lovely and it put a smile on my face. Well, my uh, co-founder Khaled Halim has taught me that one of the most profound things, one of the most profound gifts to receive somebody is the name of someone's beloved. And uh, our children can be our beloved. Our, our romantic partners can be our beloved. But um, it's, a, it's a request for intimacy that, to go back to your first question to me, is so much more meaningful than what do you do. The other thing that happens, and, and tell me if I've got this for you, by asking you to share her name, I brought you into that tender spot in your heart that's reserved for her. So that just enables you to, to then continue to be in dialogue with me, not from a place of persona or a place from right, right. wanting to impress. Right Here you are talking to an author whose book you admired, <laughs> and who the hell knows what story you were telling yourself, <laughs> oh my God, I have to impress him. Or maybe not, or maybe I'm going to take him down a notch because he's so full of himself, right? Whatever it was, instead, it was like, oh, just like me, there's a human heart over there. And, uh, you know, I could just imagine, well, I'll share a quick story. 
Yesterday, I facilitated a conversation between two of my teachers, Sharon Salzberg and Parker Palmer, both of whom I've known for more than 15 years. And then, in addition, uh, the brilliant, wonderful writer, now new teacher of mine, Valerie Kaur, who is uh, a sick, interfaith teacher, lawyer, uh, anti-racism activist whose brilliant book, See No Strangers, See No Stranger, Mm. um, moved me to tears this weekend. And if you think about what we're talking about, right, if, if I say, well, what do you do? You get to stay a stranger. Mm. I can pretend to give a shit about who you are. But when we have an empathetic connection, it is at that point almost impossible to see you as a stranger. Now, if you pause, you know, you asked about white privilege and you asked about you, you, you brought me back to the moment where I, I offered to put my body on the line for Leslie. The truth is, if I see my black, indigenous, non-black, people of color siblings, not as strangers, but as Mm -hmm. siblings, then I see the interconnectedness of all things. And I have no choice to put, but to put my heart on the line. And all that comes from saying, what's your girlfriend's name? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing and it's powerful. Uh, you, you you remind me too, I think for white people in America to, to do the work that comes from sitting with these things. And I would like to think that everyone being pent up at home with COVID uh, because of the quarantine and then having to witness the terrible atrocities of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and Jacob, Blake. Jacob Blake most recently, uh, Trayvon Martin going back. Uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson. Mike, Michael Brown and Ferguson. Eric Garner, say their names. Saying the names. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would think that COVID-19 has occasioned a time of some reflection for a lot of white America. I don't know if you've seen the, if you watched the Mr. Rogers documentary that came out a couple of years ago. I did. I was so struck by his ability to love people for who they are, as they are, in front of him, in the moment, that he meets them. And there's, there's no delusion about who a person is becoming or what they've done. So we aren't caught up in the world of aspiration or the world of accolades. There's just being with people for who they are now. That's a potent thing. It's a hard thing. And it's a complicated thing in a lot of ways, too, because so much of what what white America is, in, is endeavoring to do to, to deal with their complicity in the, the original sin of racism that has despoiled America since day one in many ways isn't enough. And there, of course, must be more. It's obvious to say that. So I I think I mentioned to you in our first talk that I I like this idea that I got from the the novelist Jonathan Safran Foer of 
measuring the distance from nothing versus the distance from perfection. Now, he was using it in the context of personal growth, Mm -hmm. that we can measure the distance from perfection, which I think we often do as we're as we're encountered with, you know, images of perfect bodies uh, and so on. And it's incredibly demotivating and discouraging. But I, but I really like to measure the distance from nothing. And I, I want to take this as a moment to give a shout out to my father, who is a 65-year-old white man who's lived in the same region of Pennsylvania his entire life. My father is a registered Republican who had a change of mind and a change of heart and voted for Obama both terms, is currently working hard to try to help Joe Biden win Pennsylvania and get elected. But aside from right or right or left side of the aisle, what I'm proud of my dad for doing, as someone also who I'll mention where he's from in Pennsylvania, it's 99% white. There aren't people of color around. He doesn't have friends who are people of color. But, you know, Jerry, he's, so this is a white Republican who hasn't traveled much and didn't go to college at the age one goes to college. He, he later earned a college degree in his 50s. But, you know, my dad is, he's reading Ta-Nehisi Coates these days with a, with a really open heart and an open mind. And he's talking to me and my brother who have lived in Boston and New York, respectively, uh, and have had more, I would say, diversifying life experiences than he has. And if every white person in America reads Ta-Nehisi Coates, I, it's not going to, that's not a magic wand, but it's distance from nothing. And I think it's, it's significant distance from nothing. What reactions do you have to that? To what I'm saying here. What's your dad's first name? <laughs> Thank you for that, as always, Tom. Hey, Tom, you raised a good man. Thanks, Jerry. As a father, I know he needs to hear that. You should be very proud of this man. I think one of the greatest capacities uh, of the human heart is the ability to expand and grow. Mm. Um, Coming to grips with the original sin, with the reckoning, is not a partisan issue. Anti-racism is not a partisan issue. That is one of the original myths, the lies of the American experiment. It has nothing to do with politics. Politics are the way in which, one of the ways in which racist feeling manifests. What our obligation is as human beings is to continue to grow. May I make an observation about one descriptor that you used about your father? Please. You said he did not go to college, and then you explained that he did not finish college at the time that, say, most Americans might have finished college. I just wanted to say that I was struck by the distinction. I feel the pride that you feel in him. And... Your father did go to college. That's where the period is in the sentence. Mm, that's true. Because the the truth is, there is no, it, it's when we reinforce normative experiences that we get into trouble. Here's a truth. 
I did not finish college for 20 years after I was supposed to have graduated. And by the way, I've never said this out loud to anybody. I mean, people in my life know this. I uh, stopped going to college one credit short because there was a mix up about a credit that I had in freshman year and blah, blah, blah. And I was too freaking annoyed about it. And it wasn't until 20 years later that the college called me to make a big donation for from alumni. And I said, well, truth is, I'm not an alumni. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and so <laughs> they awarded me the credit after oh, I agreed wow. to teach a class. <laughs> and this was at Queens College. At Queens College City University of New York. So, and I think they paid me a dollar a year so that I could officially uh, be an <laughs> adjunct. And I taught for four years. But the point is just that that part of the full human experience is to allow our minds to change and grow. There's something that we do to each other, which is, especially in relationship, we look at the other person, we say, you changed, as if it's a bad thing. And the truth is, I've grown. You've grown. Dad has grown. And by the way, by growing, I don't mean he voted Democratic when you know he was a republican i mean he's grown because you also described him to me in our first conversation as an autodidact committed to his own education you can have a phd and not be committed to your own education <laughs> that's true i've, it, I've, I've met it, a few you know them. right how many closed-minded <laughs> people are there right so what we're really talking about is having an open mind and an open heart and that's what tom has Open mind, open heart. Uh, I expected that we would uh, that I would go completely off script once I once I had you live here, and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm very happy with where we've gotten. But now I'm I'm mindful of time. So much to talk about. Talking a good bit about my my father, uh, Tom, someone who's 65. I'm currently 33. I think a lot about time and numbers, possibly too much. I think this is a motif, I guess, in my life. I was told that when I was very small, before I had an active long-term memory, that I would be walking around in my diaper asking, you know, my grandma or my mom or whoever was watching me at the time, what time is it? What time is it? As if I had, <laughs> as if I had business meetings to get to at age two and a half. I'll bracket that for now. I'm sure you have <laughs> insights. What I want to ask you about, Jerry, is I we're talking about the growth journey, uh, trajectories of understanding. As I know, you're in your mid to late 50s, depending on how you want to call the exact number. Um, 57 in December. Almost 57. So 56. Half of your life ago, when you were 28 in the early 90s, how would that Jerry, that 28-year-old Jerry, and how would the Jerry I'm speaking to right now, what would those two men disagree on, if anything? And, and perhaps maybe more deeply, what are the different ways that those two Jerry's would see and make sense of the world? I don't know that there would be much disagreement, but my push to stand still stems in part from who I was in my 20s. And I tell this story in, in the book I was living my life so quickly 
that I often felt like I was, you know, setting a land speed record where I was moving through life where my cheeks were being blown back because <laughs> I was moving so fast, you know. And, you know, if I could look back in time and take that guy for a walk, I'd say a couple of things. One, it's going to be okay. Two, because I had just had uh, my first of three children, you're going to be an amazing parent. Hmm. Three, your children are going to be amazing human beings. Mm -hmm. So chill the fuck out. (laughs) And just slow down. Just slow down. You told the story about you being, you know, asking what time it was, what time it was. Um, when I was a boy, the nickname I had was Captain Fleetfoot. And Captain Fleetfoot came about because from a very, very early age, I was always going for walks. My mother would say, well, where's Jerry? Oh, he went for a walk around the corner. He's three years old. What do you mean he's going for a walk <laughs> around the corner? This is in Brooklyn in the 1960s, you know. And it's because I was always like out there, out there, out there. One of the things that has defined the last few months with the pandemic is I am not on airplanes. The last time I was on an airplane was March 13th. This is the longest stretch of my adult life in which I have not gotten on an airplane. Captain Fleetfoot is grounded. And uh, my doctor is very, very pleased with my stress hormone levels. (laughs) And my beloved Allie feel safe because I'm not always packing a bag and heading off some far distant land to go save the world. You make me think about a meaningful distinction that I try to keep in mind about working one's hardest, which I think comes to be the prevailing ethic that is imparted in in a fast-paced American life and and perhaps other fast-paced industrialized cultures in the world. And I think that this is quite different from being one's best. I think working one's hardest and being one's best are very different things. What I'm wondering about, Jerry, in your case, as we touched on in our first call last week, we talked about your ascent at J.P. Morgan and the power and and success that you had in in New York City, no less. Mm. One of the biggest and most famous, renowned cities in the world. What I'm wondering about, Jerry, is I I look at my own situation. I'm happy with my life. I'm I'm 33 years old. I have so many blessings to count, and I I try to count them. And and I'm adding names to them, too. I mentioned Grandma and Mom a little while ago. That's Marie Mm. and Anita. I love you Mm. both. I know they'll listen to this when I do these mm-hmm. conversations. I think if, you know, even if just mom listens to, to it, it's uh, it's, that's good enough if I have a listener at one. So I love you, mom. I love you, Graham. My question here, Jerry, when I think about my own, my own life and these blessings, I, I, of course, you know, we live in three temporalities. We have our memories, we have the moment and we have our future. And there's a lot I want to do in the future. I have a lot of energy and aspirations and ambition. And I'm relatively young and I I want to be still. And I have explicit ways of creating stillness. I I have a meditation and yoga practice, but in a way, those things are still feel like doing, you know, a little bit like the discovered wisdom that we were talking about and maybe Mm -hmm. not as much 
the revelation kind of wisdom, the revealed wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm wondering if if you can share your feelings and thoughts on, on this idea that I feel like people my age, you know, look to you, can read Reboot, read other people. I don't know if you know who Philip Moffat is, but he's someone who I think of as having a similar... He's... Oh, do, do you know him personally or... No, I know his work. You know, okay, yeah, I I, I read uh, Emotional Chaos to Clarity at a different at a difficult time uh, seven years ago, and and that book has been a, an important lodestar for me. But anyway, it seems that we can't, despite everything that I'm saying, I think a lot of people my age who want to try to be still and and be reflective and engage in a little bit less doing and more more of the callous acquiring. Um, mm. Nevertheless, I feel like there's a return to the baseline of working one's hardest. And, and that involves really pushing, 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 pushing. And so how do we escape? Uh, I guess we being everyone who's younger than you, who's maybe listening to this, how do we, how do we escape the feeling that we need to break ourselves to earn the rest? And I use the, the rest in two ways. The rest as in sleep, peace. And also the rest as in the rest of our lives. The first step, I think, is to unpack and understand uh, the misunderstanding that I think is implicit in your question around the phrase work hard. And the key to understanding the misunderstanding came in the very last few seconds of the question, which was to earn the rest. At the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan, the captain, played by Tom Hanks, has gotten the entire platoon. They found Ryan, who, if you recall, is the youngest of five brothers, four of whom have been killed. And the War Department has said, go find and bring back Private Ryan, because we do not want all five sons to be killed. So they find him and he refuses to go home. No, you don't understand. This is my response. Anyway, the platoon has basically been wiped out and kind of the only ones left are the captain, Tom Hanks, and um, Matt Damon, who plays uh, Private Ryan. And Hanks has been shot and he's dying. And he whispers something to Matt Damon, who's leaning over him. And then we don't hear it at first. And then finally he spits out, earn this. The scene then shifts, and Ryan is the old man who opened up the movie, visiting Normandy. And he bursts into tears into the arms of his wife. And he says, have I been a good man? Did I earn this? I think that behind your question is, if I don't work hard enough, then I won't have earned this. Yeah. And hard work is defined by depleting oneself. Hard work is defined by a level of stress that has nothing whatsoever to do with productive work, good work. The thing that I misunderstood was that more was better. That was the belief system. 
And it compels us with a sense of urgency that if I don't earn it, not only do I have to earn it, but I have to earn it quickly because I might die. The short answer, the way out of the trap is to understand the joy of working hard for no other reason than the craft of the work. See, I work really, really hard. I talk to people all day long. I sometimes will work six, seven days a week, but I have more energy at the end of a conversation than I did at the beginning of the conversation because work is life-giving. Good work done well for the right reasons, as the poet David White says. Good work done well for the right reasons. You can fit two steam pipes together and have done good work. You can lay bricks and have done good work. It is not speed, urgency, or anxiety that cause you to earn it. It's being kind. It's being compassionate. It's being thoughtful. It's being committed to growth. These by the way, are the characteristics of true masculinity. Because I know I'm speaking to a young man. Not the toxic bullshit that passes off as the definition of manliness. I couldn't agree more. You mentioned uh, when we were talking about reading and writing our lives, mm. you mentioned uh, the need to to get some popcorn from time to time. And mm. what you were just saying made me think of the William Carlos Williams line, mm. the proper response to life is applause. <laughs> I, <love that. laughs> I asked you the what do you do question to begin because I wanted to bookend it with the who are you question, a big one to say the least. And uh, being in the position of, I like to think of these as, as conversations, but there's somewhere between interview and conversation. I'm, I'm mainly asking you questions and you're being incredibly gracious by responding and thinking and, and being uh, quick on your feet, fleet footed. So I'll, I'll give my answer to the question first and then, then I'd like to hear, hear you close. And, and, and always this answer is a work in progress for me. I, I have to add that caveat before I say anything. I, I think that I'm, I'm a thinker and I'm a feeler and I am my intention to be kind to those around me. And that includes the people and the voices in me. Uh, in a way, I think we are our intentions. It's true that the road to hell can be paved with good intentions. I think too often we will chalk a bad impact up to good intentions and that, that doesn't eradicate the, the negative impact. But nevertheless, I think that in the inner space of our own bodies, minds, hearts, I, I think that there's an irreducibility to an intention. Everything else is in flux, weight, mood, you know, energy, uh, hair, thickness, whatever. But I, I think if you set an intention, and, and mine is to try to be kind to people, you know, you have that. You have it as, as, a, as bedrock. Now, it's certainly not to say I don't fail all the time. I absolutely do. I'm sure there were a number of times that I wasn't as kind to myself or the people that I'm interacting with today. But I think my intention to be kind is a big piece of who I am. So I'll turn it to you and ask you, Jerry, who, who are you? Oh, I'm holder of stories of the heart. That's right. You're the holder. I am holder. 
I think you held my answer to the question too, because I'm not sure if I would have answered that in the way that I did had I not had this conversation with you for one hour. So I, I want to thank you. You're, you're the interviewee uh, in a sense, but in, but in another sense, you're holding me now as I'm talking to you. And I want to thank you for that. It is an honor and a privilege to hold the little bird of your story. <laughs> Jerry, this was such a pleasure. I want to strongly encourage anyone listening to read Reboot. Thanks again, Jerry. You're welcome. And I'll say this. Um, I just got the latest sales report and uh, the audio download far outstrips the sales of the hardcover, like four to one. So, wow. Go figure that. I mean, I'm in the minority. I've got the hardcover here at home, but <laughs> hey, whatever works these days. Well, there's something to, there's something totemic about holding a book in your hand. So I get You're, that. Are you the reader on the audio book, Jerry? I am. Oh, yeah. well, there's that. Well, there's that, too. That's, that's mm. I, I think that's the magic there. So I might have to double dip into the audio book then. <laughs> uh, Jerry, thanks again. I hope you have a good uh, rest of the day and I hope to connect with you again. Thank you, Pat. You take care of yourself.